Well, good morning. morning. It's great to see you. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, if you will. This morning we continue our series called The Kingdom of Heaven. The title of my message this morning is Ask and It Will Be Given to You. We find ourselves in chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 7. Let's read together. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? One of the fascinating dynamics about Christianity is God's continuous invitation for us to interact with Him intimately, personally, and privately. Throughout history, when Christianity has been separated from every other religion in the world, three dynamics of it have always been considered. The first of those three is proximity. The second is prayer, and the third is the power of the Holy Spirit. As we come to this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as He is introducing and establishing within the listening of His hearers the criteria for what it means to be one who is in the kingdom of heaven, one whose righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, one who will take the gospel, take the kingdom of heaven into the known world. Speaking to his disciples first, and then those who were also in the audience, the masses, the multitudes behind them, as he taught them these things, we must remember historically that initially these things were introduced to those of a, the Jewish nationality, of the Jewish faith. They interacted with God much differently than you and I have ever interacted with God. From the very beginning of their life as little children, they were educated in the ways of Moses. They were instructed and taught of the Old Covenant. They were uh, uh, reminded constantly of God's faithfulness. They were shown throughout the uh, Torah, the law of God. And this was the manner in which individuals interacted with God. And as a result, it established an understanding, the parameters of the covenant in which God gave through Moses to his people. And Jesus begins now to introduce the kingdom of heaven that will be truly governed by the new covenant in which he'll establish through his sacrifice and through his resurrection, inviting these people to interact with God the Father in a way in which they had never interacted with Him before. Beginning with the introduction of God the Father being known as their Heavenly Father. Let us remember how uh, reserved the Jewish people were concerning God the Father prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. 
For they held God in such great reverence that they wouldn't even spell His name completely, let alone say it out loud. And now Jesus is introducing a new relationship with God, calling Him Father. But not only that He was Jesus' Father, but also, as He began the example of prayer, our Father who art in heaven. This was an absolute stunner for those who were there listening. In fact, I have no doubt that some even believed that he was being a little too uh, loose with the manner in which he was approaching God. Of course, the religious leaders would have never stood for such laxity in the reverence of the people towards God the Father. And yet Jesus is introducing a brand new covenant, a covenant that you and I enjoy thoroughly today and fully today. But these people had never interacted with God like that before. The first dynamic that we would see in the relationship between those in the Old Testament, those during the time of Jesus, and us today is an issue of what's called proximity. Proximity. The Jewish people, because of their reverence for God, due to the fact of His holiness, His perfection, His majesty, His righteousness, were always instructed to keep their distance from God. From the very moment that Moses brought them to Mount Sinai, they were taught that they needed to stay a certain distance away, even from the foot of the mountain in which the burning bush was found. When it came to the construction of the tabernacle, for only Moses and Aaron ventured in to the tabernacle, along with Joshua, who were permitted to do so. The rest kept a distance from the tabernacle and uh, aligned themselves, as they were prescribed to do so, around the tabernacle, being the center of the people's existence. As you come now to the buildings of the temples there in Jerusalem, of course you had the inner court, you had the Holy of Holies, and then you had the outer court, which of course began with the Jewish males, and then the Jewish females, and then the Gentiles. And there was always distance between you and God. And that distance was to remind you of His holiness, His purity. His power. And it also reminded the individual that God must occupy a place of preeminence within the person's mind and heart. But now Jesus begins to invite the people to come much closer to God by calling Him their Father. A sentiment that moves on into the New Testament when Paul the Apostle also reminds us that we have been adopted as sons and daughters, heirs and heiresses to all that the king has in the kingdom through Christ. That we call him Abba, Father, Daddy. This was, again, an extraordinary thing for a Jewish person to say. But it speaks of the intimacy the closeness 
that God desires to have with His people. And that intimacy and that closeness can only be found through the mediation of Jesus Christ. It can only be discovered, it can only be obtained and maintained through the mediation of Jesus Christ. This is what the new covenant was going to provide for us. In fact, the very first event that took place at the moment of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross was the tearing of the curtain in the Holy of Holies, demonstrating that a pathway has been made possible for you and I, for every Jewish person that would turn to Christ for their salvation, for every Gentile that would turn to Christ for their salvation. We now have access to God like never ever before and whatever distance that was conveyed in the proximity settings of the old testament had all now been eliminated through christ and in the first verse of our text this morning in this we see not only instruction by asking by seeking by knocking But we know now that this was also invitational. It was invitational. It is inviting people to ask. Which many Jewish scholars believe was positioning yourself before God in a position of humility, understanding who God is and understanding who you are in the the light of who God is. The second attitude of the heart is found in the word seek which means seek God, seek to obey Him, seek His will for your life. And when it comes to the word knock, there are those who then fast forward to the book of Revelation as Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks for entrance into the church. Through prayer, through interaction. But in the time in which Jesus said these things, those who would hear Jesus would hear these words, that God is inviting you to come and interact with Him in a way of intimacy like never before. I don't think that's something we consider on a daily basis, do we? We just take it for granted because this is all that we've ever, ever known, isn't it? But it didn't always used to be like that. There are certain places in Illinois that I am not welcome to come into. I cannot just go and knock, and I mean, ask and seek and knock on Governor Pritzker's door, and he open it up for me and sit down with me, have coffee, and talk about the world's problems. Not allowed, right? Not allowed to go to the White House and just show up at the door and say, hello, my name's Eric. Oh, Eric, yeah, we know you. Come on in. President Biden's been waiting for you. Oh, good, good. How's he doing today? Yeah, I, I, I can't do that. I was at a hockey game with some friends. I think it was from here. Uh, maybe you guys remember this years ago. And we were treated to be in a skybox there in the stadium. And lo and behold, next to us in the next skybox was Michael Jordan. And I was sitting there, and Michael Jordan was sitting there, and I didn't even want to look at him. I'm like, (laughs) you know. But when it comes to God, I am freely invited to come and interact with Him whenever. 
He's never too busy. He never puts me on hold. My emails always get through. My text messages are never blocked. I'm never unfriended. God is always there. And that's only possible through what Christ was going to be able to do for us. So in and all, we find that Jesus Christ, first and foremost, He closed in the proximity to allow us to be as close to God as we desire to be through Him. An incredible invitation. An incredible privilege that we have been given in Christ Jesus that I don't think we often take advantage of. Let us know from the Scriptures that when we feel distant from God, and there are times in our life when we feel distant from God, it's a reality, it happens, it's, it's happened in my life. Let us not fool ourselves that in those moments that we do feel distance from God, it isn't God that has moved away from us, it is us that has moved away from God. Remember what James said, draw near to God and he shall draw near to you. He invites you to take that initiative and to take that step forward. Often when I hear Christians say, I just feel distant from God, they discover in the course of the conversation that it is them who have drifted away from God. And as a result of that drifting, they don't seem to have the passion and the love and the Christ no longer occupies a place of priority within their life. Other things become distractions to them in this world. And Christ, therefore, is removed from that seed of preeminence within the heart of the individual for something else, if not even maybe themselves. But in Christianity through Christ, God the Father is always there waiting to hear from us. One of the things I, loved about my, I love about my dad, he just turned 92, Oh, don't, don't feel, don't, I mean, he's milking it for everything he can get, you know. Eric, I'm 92, do you mind getting me the remote? Dad, it's six inches from your hand, you know, you know how that goes. When are you going to come visit me next? Well, I'm going to come next when your, you know, driveway doesn't need to be shoveled or the grass doesn't need to be mowed, Dad. I love my dad, he's been such a great dad. But one of the things that I love about him most, and I tried to replicate that in my own parenting of my daughter, was to always allow myself to be approachable, you know, uh, by her. My dad was always approachable. Even when he was angry, even if he was angry at me, which was quite often, I knew that I could always approach my dad. And I know that some haven't had that blessing. But I tell you, it's translated into my Christian life very well. So when it comes to proximity in the introduction of God as Father, allowing us to call Him our Father through the invitation of ask and seek and knock, and that will be open unto you, we find that we have an invitation now to interact with God on a level of intimacy like never before. And of course, we do that through prayer. I can't say this enough. 
If there's one thing that I think we are all going to regret the moment we stand before Jesus Christ, I think we are all going to regret the fact that we did not spend more time in prayer with Him while we were here. I can't make you pray. I can't make you set time aside to pray. I can't make you just wait on Him and listen for that still small voice through His Word in your heart through the Spirit. I can't do that for you. I would hope that over years of walking with the Lord, it would just come to a place of, uh, it's just natural within your relationship with, with Him to do so. I feel like I always forget something when I don't spend time personally with God each and every day. I feel like, oh, I missed an opportunity. And, and sometimes the days, you know, they go by and, and you spend more time with Him and less time with Him on other days. But I will tell you that in my 30-some years of walking with the Lord as a Christian, the healthiest Christians I have ever met are the Christians who take time each and every day to spend time in prayer and time in God's Word. Hands down. Often the Christians that are struggling the most give very little, if any time, to either one of those things. So I do believe that it plays a very practical, pragmatic fashion within our Christian lives. See, Jesus knows that if we are going to live in the manner in which He has asked us and called us to live, we are not going to be able to do it in and of ourselves. I cannot, as an individual, live as Christ has asked me to live without His help. Luke says in his recount of this particular teaching that that which is being asked for, that which is being sought, that which is being knocked up for is the Holy Spirit. God giving of the Holy Spirit to the individual. And that brings us to our third point. That God gives us the power through the Spirit of God to live as He has asked us to live in a sacrificial, uh, selfless manner unlike that of the world around us. We can only do it through the power of the Spirit. If we think that we can live the Christian life apart from the Spirit, we are fooling ourselves. As one pastor said it simply, it is impossible apart from God. It is true. As the Jewish people were now being introduced to this new covenant that you and I have enjoyed from the moment we became Christians, seeing God in a completely new light, approaching Him like never before, being invited to interact with Him through prayer like never before, being given the Holy Spirit, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, Him sending the Spirit to us as our comforter, as one who comes alongside of us, the paraclites, as it says in Greek, the people were being prepared for what Jesus was about to do next. And if we, as Christians, hope to represent God properly here and now in the time in which we live, we must take advantage of all three of these today. We must draw as close to God as possible through prayer and His Word. Knowing that God will meet us there. 
And that through the mediation of Jesus Christ, there is nothing inhibiting us from an intimate relationship with God. Secondly, we must put time aside each and every day to pray. To pray. Asking the needs of ourselves through supplication. Praising God for those things that He has already done and what He's going to yet do. Being thankful in all things. This is what God would have us to do. And then He wants them to know what they can expect as they do approach the Lord. One scholar wrote this, but I wasn't able to verify it with a second, but I'm going to throw it out there because I think it's kind of neat. He believes that the verbiage of chapter, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and, it will be, and you will find, and knock and it will be opened to you, represents one neighbor going over to another neighbor's house. Hey, Doug, you home? Can I borrow one of those cool tools you have in your tool shed? Not that I have need of it, but I just want to borrow it and look, look good like you. That kind of relationship. That's what he is trying to establish here. And it's interesting because he's often come from Jewish individuals who've become Christians and realize what they have in Jesus Christ. Because they have interacted with God under the Mosaic Covenant and see the impossibilities and the limitations of that covenant. And now in Christ they are able to act with Him, excuse me, interact with Him like never before. But when I approach God, what can I expect? Verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds And to him who knocks, it will be open. So I go over to Doug's house, knock on his door. He doesn't hide behind the couch. Hopefully he'll go away. But God will open the door to you. Now there are those who have expounded on this even further. Some are uh, more valid than others. But what God is trying to convey to those who are listening is creating an expectation within them saying this, that when you do approach God, and of course this isn't an exhaustive teaching on prayer here at this moment. We know that it must be according to God's will. We know that it is in God's timing, etc. But what he is doing is he's inviting people for the very first time that within the kingdom of God, one of the privileges of being a subject of the kingdom of God is that closeness to God through proximity, the privilege of prayer and knowing how God will respond and the giving of the power of the Holy Spirit to one who is a citizen in the kingdom of God. He's introducing it to those who are listening And God will not deceive. Verse 9. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? It's common knowledge that bread in that culture, the color of it, the shape of it, could easily be mistaken as stones. And one uh, Jewish person stated that if bread was left out long enough, you couldn't tell the difference from the weight and the hardness of it anyway. Because it would go it would go stale. But the point that Jesus is saying is that if you ask your father, he will 
not give to you in a deceitful way, but give you what you ask. And you must be discerning to know that what God gives is good. Now, it is interesting because he supplements this one more time in verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? There in Israel, in Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, there was a fish, there is a fish, it's a catfish that almost looks identical to a snake. And according to the law, the fish could not be eaten unless they had, you know, gills and, of course, fins and scales. They could not be eaten. I'm sorry, they could be eaten if they had that, or they could not if they did not have it. Again, he is alluding to deception. Now, why would Jesus bring this up at this time? I think that it is interesting that often when we pray, one of the factors that discourages us very quickly is when we pray and inadvertently, in the back of our mind, have an expectation in the manner in which God will answer that prayer, and when He doesn't, we feel let down. But I believe that the answer of no is just as much God's will as the answer yes. And so if God says no, but my expectation will be that it is yes, I could feel let down or uh, I could feel that God has disappointed me. But no, because again, I still need to uh, qualify these prayers under the umbrella of the will of God, don't I? And God has closed many, many doors that I thought, oh, that's just natural, Lord. You certainly would want me to take advantage of that opportunity. And you begin to pray about it, and he shuts the door, and you say, oh, I guess I was wrong. And he's always been right. The second aspect that I think discourages us in our prayer lives is when God says, wait. That's tough, isn't it? The Old and New Testament tell me very clearly that one of the most difficult positions for anyone who has ever followed God was to hear those words, wait on me. Okay, Lord, I will do that. It becomes difficult, doesn't it? Because, you know, one thing I have realized that my timeline is nowhere near God's timeline. Nowhere near it. I think that there's real freedom when you finally say to God, God, just tear mine up and you just put yours in and uh, I'll just subject myself to that and let's go forward. But when I hear the term wait, I always think, but Lord, you're missing a golden opportunity. Can't you see it from heaven? Don't you know, Lord? Now, wait a minute. Maybe I didn't give you all the facts that you needed, God, you know? God just smiles, you know. And then you hear that knocking. McFly. Bueller. I think these things discourage our prayer lives often. And I think that Jesus wanted us to know up front that if it is no or if it is wait, that that is just as good as if God would open the door as we would want Him to do it. That God will not deceive us. You know, when James wrote about this, he said it very 
very clearly. He says, do not be deceived, my brethren, in James 1, 16 and 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation of turning. See, God can't deceive you because there's no possibility for him to deceive anyone because that's not in his character. It's not who he is. It's interesting to me that Jesus pulls this out at this moment in time to allow the people to know that they not only can say Father to God, but they can trust Him beyond measure without doubt that He is going to be there for them. And then He says, and brings it to a very practical illustration. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You see it in every word once you see it in the light in which we have presented it. That Jesus is changing everything. That the kingdom of God was not going to be covered or, or governed, excuse me, by the Mosaic covenant. It was going to be something brand new. Jesus the head who's ascended into heaven. We now the body of Christ here on this earth. Governing through love, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the revelation and illumination through His Word. And in all of it, we can have an intimate relationship with God like never, ever before in the history of mankind. Because as we see going forward into the book of Acts, when the disciples then received the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and went out into the world, it would be easy to see how it would be possible for them to feel like they were alone at any given time. It would be easy to understand why Paul was afraid to go into the city of Corinth because of the hostilities towards Christianity there. And God seeing that fear, even though it was not indicated in the actual writings of Luke, God appears to him and says, do not be afraid. It shows an intimacy with God like never before. Something that only the prophets enjoyed, and even to a limited degree in their case. But you and I now have a heavenly Father who knows every tear that we've ever cried. He has every hair on our head numbered. He knows what we are going through. He knows what we are in need of before we ever ask. He promises to overcome the anxiety that we may experience due to the hurdles and obstacles and hostilities in this world by imparting to us a peace that surpasses under this, uh, all understanding in the wake of our prayer to Him. This is incredible. And I hope that each and every one of us can embrace God in this way because I believe it will change the dynamic of your prayer life today. When you read the Word of God, it will change your perspective of God in a healthy way, seeing God through Christ. You know, throughout the Gospels, the disciples pleaded with Jesus, show us the Father, please show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, is that speak volume on the basis of what we just read here? 
You've told us now, Jesus, we could call him our father, but what type of father is he actually? Now, remember the history of the Jewish people were uh, like a, it would be grafted as a roller coaster due to their obedience and their disobedience at any given period of time throughout their history. And it would be difficult to often see the goodness of God, but yet it is laced throughout. It is replete throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus wanted to establish them. No, I am the perfect representation of God the Father, and through me, you have all the access required of you for an intimate, personal relationship with Him. Incredible. And that which we desire the most, to fulfill that which He has given us, stating that unless our righteousness abundantly exceeds, that's the way it is written in the Greek, abundantly exceeds that of the religious leaders, we will by no means be able to enter into the kingdom of God. That righteousness established in Christ, appropriated in our life through the Holy Spirit, and therefore lived, not in the power of our flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit within our life. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Proximity, an intimate personal relationship with the God in whom you serve. Prayer, the invitation to interact with Him at any given time and place. You don't need to be in church. You don't need to be in any special location within the world. You don't need to be on the top of the highest mountain for God's ear to hear you. You can kneel next to your bed as a child would and know that you are in the presence in the throne room of God. And that He's always there. He's always there. He's always approachable. When growing up, my dad... He would escape. We had a den in our um, house. And it was a complete throwback to the 70s. It had paneling and dark wood colors and so forth. But that was my dad's hideaway. My dad was a reader. He is still a reader to this day. And when he went into the den, we did try to not bother him because we knew he was reading or working on something that he was working on and we needed to be quiet. But if my dad ever heard the gentle rap at the door asking if he had a minute to talk, he would by no means open the door, but he would lock it. No, I'm just kidding. He would by no means turn us away. He would just open it up, put what he was down, and let us sit there and talk with him as long as we had to. As long as we had to. I'd like you to turn with me in closing this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. I feel this is significant in light of all that we have discussed this morning. And I hope it encourages you as much as I believe it encouraged the initial readers that read it. In Hebrews, chapter 4, and we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, as one scholar stated, he believes only God knows that. But this was written to Jewish people who were growing discouraged, who were falling into despair, 
believing that maybe it was necessary to abandon Christ and return to Judaism under the covenant of Moses. And the writer of Hebrews brilliantly understood that they needed to understand that any high priest that they would have in Judaism was nothing compared to the high priest that they have in Jesus Christ and the access in which he provides. Now let us remember that the high priest in Israel during the time of Jesus Christ was one of the most corrupt individuals there in Jerusalem. He was misleading the people theologically. As Jesus said, not only do you not enter into the kingdom of God, but neither do those who follow you. He was ripping off the people financially by selling uh, lambs that had been rejected uh, by the priests for other families back to families who needed to buy one and charging exorbitant prices. And then after the ascension of Jesus Christ and Christianity began, Judaism continued all the way till 70 AD in the form in which people would have been familiar with it until the destruction of the city of Jerusalem altogether. But the writer of Hebrews wanted to remind them about the high priest. Remember the high priest in which you had? The man, the individual who was so corrupt, misleading people in the manner in which he did, not being able to lead anyone else following him into the presence of God? Remember the corruption that took place concerning the financial means in which he took advantage of the Jewish people? But in chapter 4, starting in verse 14, he writes to remind them, seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The high priest, the mediator that we have now, and that's what the high priest was meant to be for the nation of Israel, a mediator between the people and God and God and the people. The writer of Hebrews is saying, that now is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That position is filled by Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest under the order of Melchizedek. He was perfect. He loved us unconditionally. His compassion towards us was overwhelming. And He now, and He alone, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. He alone is our mediation between us and God and God and us. Let us remember who stands in the gap on our behalf. And that no man here on this earth could ever supersede the excellence of Jesus Christ. That's what He's saying here. In verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Oh, isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ tempted in all ways but never sinned. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it meant to have nothing. He knew what it meant to be rejected. He knew what it meant to be scorned. He knew what it meant to be persecuted. We have a high priest that we can go to and he can sympathize, not just empathize, he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses taking the form of man and experiencing all of the weaknesses of the flesh, and yet without sin, perfect before God. 
but was in all points tempted as we are. Yet he is without sin. For a Jewish person to hear this, it would be an extraordinary. For the high priest, unfortunately, after time, we see through historical evidence that they became incredibly self-righteous, believing that their position was not that of grace, but of merit. Believing that they earned the privilege to be the high priest there in Jerusalem. And therefore, they were better than other people. You couldn't just simply approach the high priest. You couldn't just simply interact with him. And the high priest of that time never went out of his way to interact with anybody else. But yet, Jesus sought out the least of society when he was here. He ate with those that were cast off by the civil society because he did not come to minister to the healthy, but to the sick. Do you ever notice Jesus was always approachable? Even the children could come to him and he welcomed them. He welcomed them. And even when the disciples failed, they still knew that He loved them. Why did Peter weep the way he did after denying Jesus after the third time and then his eyes connecting with his Lord? And yet one of the first people that Jesus was interested in meeting with was Peter and told the angel, go get Peter. You know why? Because God doesn't leave us down. My dad, when he was teaching me how to ride a two-wheeler without training wheels, and I finally got it. I was 16. When I fell, he never just stood there and just looked at me like, you're hopeless. Forget it. He always picked me up and then the bike and put me back on it and helped me out again. God never leaves us abandoned. In verse 16, and this is how I want to conclude today. In light of verses 14 and 15, he says to those Jewish people contemplating to return to Judaism, He's saying, instead of turning back, turn forward and let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Well, I'm not talking about the throne room in the palace in Jerusalem or the holy of holy in the temple there in Jerusalem. I'm talking about the throne room of God himself. We are welcome, the door is open, and in Christ we can come boldly. As one Hebrew writer, a Jewish writer wrote, he said that he saw this as being able to run into the throne room of God and jump on Dad's lap. For a Jewish person, this is so liberating. It's seeing God in a whole new way. And I hope that you and I, please understand, I'm not trying to be irreverent to who God is. Because God is holy, He is righteous, He is majestic in all ways, and only through Christ, in Christ alone, can I approach Him. But the relationship that He desires to have with me is one, that, is one of that of family. And this is why the kingdom of God is not merely made up of subjects, but brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a family. 
and dad's on the throne. And he's always available to his kids.